I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. I bought into this, what I now regard as a neocon fantasy, that Iraq could be transformed, and through it, the entire region could be transformed for the better. The 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq has prompted a wave of reflection on the war. How and why it began, where it went wrong, how it continues to haunt the Middle East and burden American leadership. In a recent essay in Foreign Affairs titled What the Neocons Got Wrong, Max Boot does some of this painful reflection. In 2003, Boot was a prominent neoconservative voice making the case for war. In a conversation with my colleague Justin Vogt, he looks back with regret at the flawed assumptions that shaped his thinking and considers the troubling lessons for American foreign policy today. Max, hi. Welcome to the Foreign Affairs interview. Thanks for having me. We are in the midst of the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the Iraq War, and that's the occasion for this remarkable essay. It's titled, What the Neocons Got Wrong and How the Iraq War Taught Me About the Limits of American Power. And it's different in some ways from our usual fare in that it's more personal. It's a it's an account of your own transformation as a thinker and a commentator. It's hard to change your mind. It's even harder to admit you're wrong after you've changed your mind. And it's really hard to do both of those things publicly. Uh, but that's what you've done, and not just in this essay, but in many different ways in recent years. You've been telling this story of your ideological and, and political journey during the Trump era, which has seen you leave the Republican Party. You've renounced the conservative movement. You've really come to alter the role that you play in public discourse. You wrote a book on the subject a few years ago, The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. Your columns in the Washington Post have, have tracked this transformation in real time. And now you've written this essay, which describes how you went from being an ardent proponent of the US invasion of Iraq to not only seeing it as a colossal error, but as a reflection of something fundamentally wrong with American foreign policymaking. So I thought what we could do is start with a very basic question. There were a lot of different versions of the case for invading Iraq. What was the neoconservative case? I think the neoconservative case was really focusing more on the potential of transforming Iraq into a democratic showcase because there was kind of a frustration after 9-11. And yes, we had very swiftly toppled the Taliban. And of course, the 9-11 attacks came from Afghanistan. But nevertheless, there was a larger sense of frustration, I think, in the country at large, certainly in the Bush administration and among a lot of intellectuals, including so-called neocons, that we just had not done enough to respond to the September 11th attacks and that this was all a product of this militant Islamism, which had been brewing for decades in the greater Middle East, and that we somehow had to take it on at the source rather than just deal with it at the periphery in Afghanistan. And there was kind of this grand ambition, which I think was fed by scholars like Bernard Lewis and Fawad Ajami to suggest that Iraq offered fertile soil for democracy and that if we could transform Iraq, it could begin to transform the entire region for the better. Now, just to clarify, I certainly would not have advocated the use of force in Iraq if it was 100% about democracy, because I also did believe that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and I don't think that was a deliberate 
lie on the part of the Bush administration. I think it was a tragic error on the part of our intelligence community and the part of many other intelligence communities to imagine that Saddam had this WMD. But while that was the immediate and proximate justification for military action, what I really wanted to do was to get rid not just of Saddam Hussein's weapons, but of Saddam Hussein himself, this cruel, evil dictator, because I bought into this, what I now regard as a neocon fantasy, that Iraq could be transformed and through it, the entire region could be transformed for the better. And do you think that that's the case that ultimately led to the invasion? There's still this great debate really about why the United States actually invaded Iraq. What's your sort of baseline view of that? Bottom line, what's the explanation of why we did it? I think it was a combination of factors. I would certainly say the dominant one was concerned about WMD and what Dick Cheney called the 1% doctrine or or what some people ascribed as the 1% doctrine to Dick Cheney, which is that if there's even a 1% chance we could be attacked with these horrific weapons, we have to do something about it. But I think that there was also running side by side of that, this strong strain of idealism, imagining that we could transform Iraq and the greater Middle East in a more democratic and liberal direction. So I would say probably about two-thirds national security rationales, but about maybe one-third idealistic democracy-spreading rationales. And those two, two things certainly went hand in hand. And there were you know, certainly people who emphasized one over the other. I would certainly say somebody like Donald Rumsfeld, who was pretty cynical and unidealistic, was really focused on the national security rationale, whereas folks like Paul Wolfowitz, or for that matter, me, were more focused on the the idealistic rationale. During the run-up to the war, you were the op-ed page editor of the Wall Street Journal, which is sort of a celebrated bastion of conservative thought. You were in your mid-30s at that time, is that about right? Mid-20s. Mid-20s. Okay. So you were a young person, but you were sort of a player in the conservative commentariat already. What was it like to be in that world, in that environment at that moment in the aftermath of 9-11 and the run-up to the war? It was a very intense period. I mean, I remember immediately after 9-11 because the Wall Street Journal offices were actually located across the street from the World Trade Center. And so our offices were pretty devastated by the attack. We all had to work out of a temporary office in Princeton, New Jersey, and it was kind of an intense period. There was a sense that the world was changing and we were you know, helping to transform it and dealing with this unimaginable event and trying to make sense of it and trying to direct policy in an appropriate direction. And I think you know, things kind of went off the rails after the Taliban went down. And I think it was, you know, I certainly, I don't want to speak for anybody else, really, because this is not meant to be an indictment of others. It's really an indictment of myself. But I think I certainly became, you know, prey to excessive alarmism about the impact of 9-11, but also excessive optimism about the ability of the United States to change the Middle East for the better. And, you know, those emotions are hard to understand if you weren't actually there on September 11th. And I mean, I was, I physically saw the the World Trade Center falling. So this was a very, you know, immediate and, you know, emotionally resonant event for me. And I think under the sway of those times, the emotion of the moment, the pressures of the moment, I think policy for the U.S. went off the rails. And, you know, I think George W. Bush felt it more than anybody. And, you know, after a very appropriate and I think successful response 
in the immediate months after 9-11, I think his administration's policy went over the top in large part because of the counsel he was receiving from a lot of folks inside the administration. But, you know, I think also those of us on the outside who are playing this advocacy role have to take some ownership of of what we're saying and, and the and the consequences of our words. Can you talk a little bit about your experience immigrating to the United States as a child and the role that that may have played in how you kind of became a conservative in the first place and, in, and also in how you saw those events? Yeah, I, I think the fact that I came from a communist country when I was six years old and- From the Soviet Union. From the Soviet Union, right. And, you know, found refuge in the United States with my family. It made me, you know, sort of 110% pro-American. I mean, I think like like one of my heroes, John McCain, I would say that Americanism kind of became my religion. And I probably took an overly, probably an excessively optimistic view of the United States and our potential to to improve the world and, you know, belief in, in what the United States could do and, and kind of I became kind of committed to this narrative of the U.S. as a force for good and, and really overlooking a lot of the darker, more disturbing strands in American history in a way that, in hindsight, I'm, I'm realizing that I had a fairly unbalanced view. But I think that a lot of that came out of being this young kid who was, had my world turned upside down, moving from Moscow and in the Soviet Union to a little town called Riverside, California, and wanting to assimilate, wanting to become more American than American. And so, you know, I, I think I had excessive faith in the United States, which was further con- fed or that kind of fantasy was further confirmed by by the other formative event of my early years, uh, which was, of course, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, followed by the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, and that was really the, what was known as the unipolar moment when it seemed like America could do anything. We had won the Cold War. Uh, we had no true rivals. Francis Fukuyama proclaimed the end of history, that the triumph of liberal democratic ideology, and I, I bought into a lot of that. That was, that was sort of my upbringing, and so I was kind of conditioned from an early age to have this tremendous, in hindsight, excessive faith in America. And in our role as a beacon of freedom and democracy, again, overlooking some of the negative parts of our history, including some of the negative parts of our history abroad. And so all of that kind of conditioned me when the shock of 9-11 happened to have grandiose expectations of what the United States could achieve in the world. At the time, the the debate over uh, Iraq and, and Afghanistan to a certain extent and, and sort of the war on terror more broadly was hot. It was polarizing. From your you know, where you sat at that time, what did you make of the opposition to the Iraq war and to critics of the idea of invading? What, what was your sort of mental picture of them? I was too quick, I think, in hindsight to dismiss the critics. And I think I was prey to a kind of groupthink, which very easily develops when you become part of a political or ideological movement. And I was very much part of the conservative movement at that time. Again, as, as you mentioned, I was the op-ed editor at the Wall Street Journal, I was a contributor to the Weekly Standard, kind of the flagship, quote-unquote, neocon publication. And essentially through this, somehow, this this process, which was almost by osmosis, 
kind of quote unquote our team, and I'm putting our in, in quote marks there, our team decided that the thing to do was to invade Iraq. And Richard Haas, who was then working at the at the State Department as the director of policy planning, I think tells the story, if I get this right, that you know he went to Condi Rice, who was then the national security advisor and wanted to do some internal deliberations on whether we should invade Iraq or not. And Condi Rice basically told him the decision's already been made. And he wasn't aware that the decision had been made, but somehow it was made without that kind of formal process of interagency deliberation and, and coordination. It was somehow just made in the Oval Office, essentially. And there was kind of that mind meld going on where I think there was a, those of us who were in favor of the invasion tended to be very impatient and dismissive of arguments against and did not give them the serious consideration they deserved. And in hindsight, one of the things I kicked myself about was I actually ran a piece in August of 2002 by Brent Scowcroft, who could not be accused of being some kind of far-left radical. Scowcroft famously a sort of realist who had served the first President Bush as national security advisor. Exactly. And and also Gerald Ford and former Air Force general. And and, uh, Scowcroft warned against this invasion, which he wrote could become this open-ended military occupation, which might wind up creating more terrorists than it eliminated. And of course, I ran that. I was happy to run it. I wanted to foster the debate, but I didn't give his argument serious consideration. I tended to roll my eyes at it and think, oh, you know, that's excessive caution. That's There was a lot of criticism at the time of, by folks like me and in the George W. Bush administration of how the George H. W. Bush administration had handled Iraq because, of course, the elder Bush administration had defeated Iraq in the Gulf War in 1991, but had not pressed on to overthrow Saddam Hussein, and that had terrible repercussions for Shia and Kurds in Iraq. And so there were a lot of people many of them veterans of that initial Bush administration serving under George W. Bush, who wanted to rectify what they saw as that mistake. And I was very sympathetic to that view. And so I tended to dismiss the counsels of caution from veterans of the elder Bush administration. And of course, looking back on it, the people who were urging caution, they were dead right. You mentioned Scowcroft. You also earlier, you mentioned Fuad Ajami, you mentioned Bernard Lewis. You know, these were all figures of some level of status and authority and, and expertise. What you're explaining your own sort of rationale and thought process. Why do you think Bernard Lewis and Fuad Ajami got it wrong and Brent Scowcroft got it right? Is there some way of of figuring out why that was? Very hard to say. I think it ultimately comes down to that one of the most hard to define qualities, which is judgment. And either you have it or you don't. And in a way, this is kind of an argument against having too much specific knowledge because Ajami and Bernard Lewis certainly knew a heck of a lot more about the Middle East than than Brent Scowcroft did. I mean, they'd spent their whole lives studying the region. Scowcroft had not. I mean, he was primarily focused on the U.S.-Soviet competition. Nevertheless, he had, you know, basic good judgment and he could understand what made sense for the use of American military force and what did not. And, you know, sadly, I regret listening more to, to Ajami and Lewis than to Brent Scowcroft. Maybe Scowcroft understood the United States better than Ajami and, and Lewis did. Yeah, I think so. And I think he'd also held positions of high responsibility. So he understood what's actually involved in using American military force. He was a career military man. So I think he had a greater understanding of the limitations as well as the capabilities of American military force. Whereas 
uh, if you're just looking at it from the outside, it's possible to imagine that we have these magical qualities that we don't actually possess. So 2003, obviously March 2003, the debate ends and the war begins. First couple of months seem to be going okay, but pretty quickly it, uh, things go off the rails. And I'm wondering, when did you change your mind about Iraq? Was there a, a development or a sequence of events that made you reconsider? Or when did you realize that you had changed your mind? It was a long process. I mean, I it was a struggle at first even to admit that things were not going well because, of course, the propaganda line from the Bush administration was, don't worry about it. As Don Rumsfeld said, these are just a bunch of dead-enders. They cannot stop the march of progress. And you know, the Bush administration focused on Iraqis holding up their fingers to show that they had voted. And, and freedom is untidy, I think, was one of the Freedom is untidy. Yeah, there was a lot of, you know, attempts to dismiss what was going on, even at the higher levels of, of the U.S. military, just to pretend that things were not going off the rails. And then, I mean, I started traveling to Iraq in 2003, and I saw for myself that things were not necessarily going all that well. And so by 2000. And six, I was certainly seeing that the war was being lost, and I was an advocate for what became known as the surge, which was an attempt to put in more U.S. troops and to change the strategy to a more counterinsurgency-type strategy so that they weren't just driving by neighborhoods. They were actually trying to provide 24-7 security to the people. And, of course, that was happening at the same time that a lot of Sunni sheikhs were turning against al-Qaeda and were willing to work with the United States. So I was I was in favor of that change of strategy because I at least recognized that things weren't going well. And after the Abu Ghraib revelations, uh, I called for Don Rumsfeld to be fired because I thought he was not providing effective oversight of the U.S. military. And that was one of the first things that did not endear me to some of my Confederates on the right, for whom at that point Don Rumsfeld was a great hero. Uh, so I was, you know, quite critical. And in fact, I remember in 2006, I was called in with several other conservative pundits, and we met with President George W. Bush in the Oval Office. And I actually asked them a question about a, a news story that morning in the Washington Post reporting that the chief marine intelligence officer, this was in September of 2006, the chief marine intelligence officer in Anbar province was reporting that Anbar province, which was where you know, kind of the, the, the hotbed of the insurgency was lost. So the senior Marine was saying that the war in Anbar province was lost. And I asked President Bush about that, and he did not appreciate my question because he seemed to treat it as an act of disloyalty. And I asked him how he could believe in the progress being reported by General Casey, the senior U.S. commander, and, and Secretary Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, Whereas the folks on the ground, like this Marine intelligence officer, were painting a very different picture. And he went off on a screed about how he had to believe the chain of command. And he had looked in the eyes of General Casey, and he was a good man, and so forth. So I, I was becoming quite frustrated with the Bush administration at that point and their management of the war. And then I supported the, the surge and saw the progress for myself on my subsequent visits to Iraq. And then things more or less somewhat stabilized in Iraq in 2000. 7, 2008, the threat from al-Qaeda waned. And so I didn't really see the need for a true reckoning with the initial decision to go to war. And I didn't really make that until years later, really when I was 
writing my book on the corrosion of conservatism in 2018 and looking back on my kind of intellectual and ideological trajectory. And it made me realize, you know, I had to own up to things. I couldn't just pretend that, you know, I'd suddenly gotten, you know, I, I couldn't pretend that the Republican Party had suddenly gone off the rails without admitting that I had contributed to some of the bad decision-making of the Republican Party in the past, including the war in Iraq. And so that was that was a very difficult thing for me to do, but kind of cathartic to come out and say the whole thing was a big mistake, that the invasion of Iraq was was a huge misstep. And so that's kind of liberated me. It's because I think there's a tendency when when you've taken a controversial stance and you've taken a lot of flack for it, there's a tendency to kind of dig in and defend the position to the last. And it's actually kind of strangely liberating to say, yeah, wait a second, I did get that wrong. And it's at first, you know, you feel very vulnerable doing that. You feel like, wait a second, I'm basically opening myself up to the critics here. And I'm saying I didn't know what I was talking about, but it's actually in the end, it's kind of liberating because it's it allows you to be honest about yourself and about what happened. Were there times that you felt, I mean, I'm talking about back around the time of the surge or even after the surge, was it that you really didn't think that things had gone badly and you didn't think it was a fiasco or did you sort of think that but you didn't quite want to say it yet because that might have negatively affected your ability to influence things or or have access to people? Was that part of it as well? I mean, I think I kind of took refuge in the argument that it wasn't necessarily the decision to go to war that was fundamentally mistaken. It was the way the Bush administration had conducted the war. The execution was The wrong. execution, not the initial idea. And of course, yeah, no question, the execution was very badly screwed up and, and the administration and the military made many mistakes. But at the end of the day, I finally had to conclude, no, it wasn't just execution. The, the whole idea was misbegotten from the beginning. We'll be back after a short break. It's Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Our new season is about to drop, and once again, we're asking the important questions about international issues and why they matter to you. Has the world become more dangerous for journalists? Is nuclear warfare on the horizon? And what in the world is going on in the Arctic? If you're just stepping into the world of international relations or know someone who is, then this podcast is for you. Alongside CFR experts and guests, we break down the facts so that you can understand what's really happening out there. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters. We'll bring the world home to you. One of the lessons that you draw from the Iraq fiasco is that policies of regime change don't really work, whether they involve military intervention or covert action or sanctions. Many of the people who advocated for regime change via military action in Iraq continue to advocate regime change elsewhere, although not necessarily via the same means. That's especially true about Iran, which you write about in the essay. How does your interpretation of what went wrong with Iraq influence your thinking about Iran? Looking back on, on what happened in Iraq and, and also in Afghanistan, I think makes me much more cautious about promoting regime change, whether it's by military force, covert action, sanctions, whatever mechanism you prefer, because I've become pretty jaded about the ability of the United States to influence the political development of foreign countries. And this is really in part growing out of something I saw with my own eyes. And numerous trips with U.S. military forces in Iraq and Afghanistan to 
cite just one one anecdote that occurred actually in 2003, where I was in a Marine Force Reconnaissance convoy that was hit by IEDs as the Marines were going on a raid. And I remember the convoy pulled over and I jumped out of this light armored vehicle. And, you know, a few minutes later, the Marines brought over this Iraqi man in a tracksuit with flex cuffs on because they thought he might have something to do with these bombs that had gone off. The problem was this man did not speak English and there was nobody in the convoy, including me, who spoke Arabic because this was very early in the conflict. Nobody had thought to have interpreters with American military units. And so in some ways, this kind of symbolized for me personally the inability of the United States to comprehend what was going on in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. We literally could not speak the language. And even when we finally got interpreters, that did not make it any easier to understand the very complex dynamics, often tribal dynamics in societies like Iraq and Afghanistan. It made me realize, wait a second, if we can't understand what's going on, how do we manipulate it? How do we shape it? And for example, in Afghanistan, I very quickly learned that the conflict was a whole lot more complex than people imagined from thousands of miles away, because from thousands of miles away, you could say, hey, this is a conflict between the forces of democracy and barbaric medieval Islamist ideology in the form of the Taliban. But in fact, up close, what I saw was that very often what was driving the conflict was corruption and abuse carried out by American-supported officials in what was often driving ordinary Afghans into the arms of the Taliban was not any kind of religious fanaticism, but simply a desire to have some protection from abusive officials, to have some justice done in their disputes with neighbors. And so I, you know, it, it dawned on me over the years that the dynamics were so complex, so hard to understand, that it was nearly impossible for the United States to shape those societies in the way that we wanted to shape them. And so it's just left me much more hesitant about suggesting that the United States knows how to micromanage any other society. I mean, goodness knows we have enough trouble running our own country. It makes me wonder what happened to that Iraqi man in the tracksuit. Yeah, I mean, it could be almost anything. You know, one very likely scenario is that he wound up getting sent to Camp Buk or one of these other American detention camps and that he may not have had anything to do with the insurgency before going into the prison, but afterwards, he may have become a dedicated insurgent. Let me drill down a little bit about this question of regime change. Because in the piece, the way you describe it, it sounds like you do support a range of things in Iran that are designed to weaken the regime. Sanctions, support for protesters, kind of isolating Iran internationally to a certain extent. What distinguishes that, aside from the use of military force, from a kind of pro-regime change policy? What's the difference there? Well, the big difference is I, you know, I changed my mind about the Iran nuclear deal when it was being negotiated. I thought it was too generous to the Iranian government. But in hindsight, the Iranian nuclear deal worked. It actually stopped the Iranian nuclear program. And Donald Trump's decision to pull out of the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, was a catastrophic miscalculation. And so I was very much in favor of Joe Biden trying to get back into the nuclear accord which is something that folks who still identify themselves as quote-unquote neocons oppose, or a lot of Republicans oppose it, even if they're not neocons, because they say, hey, this is a terrible government, awful regime, they abuse their own people, they sponsor 
terrorist movements and militant movements around the Middle East. They want to eradicate Israel. All of that is true, but that doesn't mean that we can't deal with the regime. And certainly we dealt with you know, some of the most heinous regimes on the planet led by rulers like Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. We can certainly deal with the Iranian Islamic regime if it's in our interest to do so. I want to read you a passage from an article by the American historian Stephen Wertheim, who kind of identifies as a realist, I think, on foreign policy. This is a foreign affairs piece that he's written. He writes, American policymakers, politicians, and experts now generally reject wars to change regimes or rebuild nations. For the most part, in weighing the use of force, they have rediscovered the virtue of prudence. And they now appreciate that democracy is rarely imposed at gunpoint, and that even countries with the strongest democratic foundations, such as the United States, need to work hard to keep democracy alive and well, as you pointed out. He says these are necessary lessons, but they do not suffice. They reduce the Iraq war to a policy error, which can be corrected while the United States goes on pursuing the hegemonic world order it has assigned to itself since the Cold War ended. This overlooks the fact that the decision to invade Iraq stemmed from the logic of pursuing U.S. primacy. Such a strategy directs the United States to fund a massive military and scatter it across the globe for an essentially preventive purpose to dissuade other countries from rising. Promising to keep costs low, it assumes that U.S. hegemony will not engender resistance and strikes hard to snuff out any that appears. It sees leading the world almost as an end unto itself, disregarding the abundant strategic alternatives that wide oceans, friendly neighbors, and nuclear deterrence afford the United States. What do you make of that? I disagree with that. I guess I'm, I'm certainly not becoming some kind of isolationist. I think that's a huge mistake. I think, you know, we certainly need to be more prudent in the exercise of American power, but I still very much believe in the imperative and necessity of American global leadership. And I think we're seeing it today in Ukraine. And that was kind of a wake-up call because, of course, the invasion of Ukraine came after two decades of largely failed wars in the Middle East, shortly after the American pullout from Afghanistan, which was another fiasco. And it left a lot of Americans looking inward, especially because of all the crises of our own democracy symbolized by the attack on the Capitol on, on January 6. But Ukraine was kind of a wake-up call to say, wait a second, we can't afford to ignore the world. And if it weren't for the United States, I think it's it's pretty obvious that Vladimir Putin would now rule in Kiev and Ukraine would once again become a region of the Russian Empire. So I, you know, I think what we're doing is absolutely correct and absolutely imperative, not only for kind of idealistic and democratic reasons, but for hard-headed realpolitik reasons, which I think it is very much in our interest to enforce the international order to enforce certain international norms and the international rule of law, much in the way that George H.W. Bush did in 1991 by mobilizing this coalition to say that this aggression committed by Iraq and Kuwait would not stand. I think President Biden today is saying pretty much the same thing, that the Russian ag aggression in Ukraine will not stand. And I think how this conflict goes will help to determine the shape of the 21st century order. And I think it would be catastrophic if we were to abdicate our leadership responsibility and allow tyrannies, whether Russia or China or Iran or North Korea, to run amok. We should certainly be prudent in the way we deal with them. And I think President Biden is right to avoid sending American troops or American aircraft to avoid any kind of direct clash with Russia. But we certainly need to be the arsenal of democracy and supporting 
regimes that are being attacked in the way that, that Ukraine was attacked. And I think one of the key distinctions that I've reached in recent years is the one between exporting democracy and defending democracy. And I think it's, you know, what, what I was talking about earlier was really how hard it is to export democracy and how it's a nearly hopeless task. But defending democracy is much more doable because we see that Ukrainians are fighting and dying for their own country. They're not asking us to do that for them. We're not imposing a government on them. They've chosen their own government. They they have a great wartime leader in President Zelensky who is almost university, universally popular. And so this is a government and a cause that I think most Americans can get behind, and, and rightfully so. That said, part of the problem you diagnosed in the run-up to the Iraq war with policymaking, there was a sort of groupthink that you felt you experienced yourself. So do you welcome sort of more debate about Ukraine policy, U.S.-Ukraine policy? There's a sort of growing skepticism on the on the right. Ron DeSantis has, has said that he doesn't think that uh, Ukraine represents a vital interest for the United States. Is that healthy? Is that good in your view to have that kind of debate? I think it's good and healthy as long as you have a factual debate. Unfortunately, a lot of what you hear on the right these days from folks like Tucker Carlson is just name-calling against President Zelensky and repeating these outrageous Russian lies, for example, about supposed bioweapons labs in, in Ukraine, which never existed. So yeah, by all means, let's have a real debate uh, over the right U.S. strategy. And you can certainly have legitimate disagreements and, you know, should we send them F-16s or not? That's a completely legitimate area of disagreement. But you know, I think it's important to to keep the debate on a factual basis. And unfortunately, I think too much of what happens today, especially on the right, is that these debates often devolve into uh, fake news and conspiracy mongering. Speaking of debate, you recently wrote a, a striking op-ed for the Washington Post on U.S.-China policy. And in it, you talked about a hearing that was held by the House Select Committee on the strategic competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. And at this hearing, all the expert witnesses were highly hawkish critics of China. There really wasn't anyone that spoke about the benefits of US cooperation of, uh, with China or of interdependence with China. And you wrote this, you said, the problem today isn't that Americans are insufficiently concerned about the rise of China. The problem is that they are prey to hysteria and alarmism that could lead the United States into a needless nuclear war. You added that the committee was engaging in bipartisan alarmism. Is your take on this sort of informed to some extent by that, that groupthink problem of Iraq? How do you see these things as related, if at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've seen examples in modern American history where the kind of groupthink about foreign threats led us in a very dangerous and misguided direction. We saw that, of course, with Vietnam, where the Tonkin Gulf Resolution was passed with almost no dissenting votes in either house. And of course, it led us into this tragic quagmire. We saw that again with the use of force resolution for Iraq, which had more dissenting votes, but also had overwhelming bipartisan support and also led us into this tragic quagmire. And of course, a war with China would dwarf either of those conflicts in level of destructiveness. It could well turn into a nuclear war or something almost unthinkable. So you know, I'm not trying to paint a Pollyannish view of Chinese intentions or capabilities. I think it's completely fair to be worried about the rise of Chinese power, the way that they threaten their neighbors, in particular Chinese designs on Taiwan, which we need to resist, or to their designs to take over the South China Sea. I think those are all issues of great concern, and we need to 
build up our military to deter a conflict with China. But I just get worried about this hysterical rhetoric about China, which you saw coming out, for example, when this Chinese surveillance balloon flew over the United States. And, you know, to listen to a lot of Republicans, this was like China bombing the United States, or, you know, this was a calculated insult to the United States. But not just Republicans, but Democrats too. Yeah, right? a lot of Democrats too. That There's a lot of certainly bipartisan, there's a lot of bipartisan alarmism. And I think this is a dynamic similar to what we saw in the early years of the Cold War, where Republicans are basically trying to tag Democrats as being soft on communism, and Democrats are trying to resist that charge by showing, no, we're as tough on communism as anybody. And that was, in fact, a lot of Lyndon Johnson's motivation for getting into Vietnam was because he remembered how the communist takeover in China led to Republican attacks on who lost China, accusing the Truman administration of being responsible. And he didn't want attacks on on the Johnson administration for losing Vietnam. So that's, you know, I, I just think that's a dynamic we need to be very wary of today. And we need to understand that, well, yeah, we need to compete with China and we need to contain China. We, there are also areas where we can cooperate with them. I want to bring the conversation a little bit back to Iraq. What I think it's fair to say what ultimately led you to break with the GOP and with conservatism more broadly was not anything directly related to Iraq. It was the rise of Donald Trump whom you rejected as a dangerous figure, someone who was not fit for office. But you do see a kind of connection between the Iraq fiasco and the rise of Trump. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think the, the, the Iraq fiasco kind of fueled discontent with the normal elite within the Republican Party. And that was something that Donald Trump, with his isolationist instincts, uh, seized on very effectively. I mean, it was actually kind of shocking in 2016 to see him attacking John McCain and attacking especially the Bush family in a way that you'd never heard other Republicans do. And yet it actually resonated with a lot of the base because a lot of Republicans had become disenchanted with this foreign policy as well. So, you know, Trump definitely tapped into something which had been there at the grassroots of the Republican Party for a long time. There's a lot of isolationist sentiment and it had not been addressed by Republican leaders from Eisenhower, you know, through McCain and Romney, all of whom came from a, a more uh, internationalist mindset, wanting to lead the world and, and support allies. And Trump tapped into, into the sentiment, which, as I say, has always been there, but now is, is much closer to being the dominant force in the Republican Party than it was prior to Trump. And now you see Ron DeSantis, who is the quintessential finger to the wind politician, who in, in 2014, when the Russians invaded Crimea, sounded like a traditional hawk wanting to support the Ukrainians. And now he's adopted that Trumpist, isolationist, quasi-pro-Russian line of being very skeptical of aid to Ukraine. I think that's where the Republican Party is headed. And that's you know, part of the reason why I'm no longer a Republican. I don't recognize this party. And that's not something I want to be a part of. You've written, especially in, in your book, about your disappointment with people who you thought shared your values and your beliefs, but who ultimately endorsed or, or backed Trump, uh, maybe most significantly Marco Rubio, whose uh, campaign you advised in, in 2016. Why do you think there, to put it kind of bluntly, there were so many more Marco Rubios than never Trumpers? Well, because I think, you know, people in the Republican Party, most of them are, are basically looking out for number one, and they very quickly realize that 
to go against Donald Trump, as Rubio tried to do in 2016, could be the political kiss of death and that you they basically decided they had to accommodate themselves to Trump to one extent or another. And so they they all either fell silent or actively joined this Trumpist chorus. And it's been heartbreaking and disappointing to see that there are only a very few profiles of courage and courage out there like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And of course, both Liz and Adam are no longer in Congress. So that's an indication of where the Republican Party is at today. Broadly speaking, how do you think we should deal with this issue of sort of accountability in public life? This is something that we've been talking about. Now. If people get something really wrong, whether it's Iraq or Trump or whatever, how should that affect their credibility or their authority when it comes to matters of public importance? I think it needs to be taken into account, but it needs to be, you know, you need to look at the totality of people's positions. And I, I know that there are, I certainly have some very fervent critics on the far left and far right whose position is basically, well, you know, you admitted you were wrong about Iraq, so why should we listen to you about anything at all? And shouldn't you just uh, go away and shut up and, and never enter the public debate again? Well, okay, but if everybody who was wrong about Iraq left the public debate, then President Biden would have to leave office too because he actually voted for the war in Iraq. And so, you know, everybody gets gets things wrong and sometimes very big things. And And, you know, just because you were opposed to the war in Iraq doesn't mean you were right about everything else either. I think to have any kind of credibility as a political leader or political figure or political commentator, I think you can't expect to be right about everything. Nobody can. But I think what you should do is to try to own up to your mistakes, try to learn from them and try to be honest about them. And, and that's what I've tried to do. I think that's a good place for us to end. So from all of us at, uh, at Foreign Affairs, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming Dresser, and Molly McEnany. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, Gabrielle Sierra, and Marcus Zacharia. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in.